Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Coming up on the program, the Trudeau government announces new environmental measures to help Canada meet its climate change commitments. We'll hear from a minister on the new measures, including a major hike in the federal carbon tax. New federal data says Canada is heading for even higher infection rates in all its largest provinces, with up to almost 2,000 deaths by Christmas. We'll talk to the chair of the government's cabinet committee on COVID-19 about the latest figures. And our journalists weigh in on the politics of vaccines and health transfers. But well, we start with the latest figures from federal health officials of where the pandemic is headed in Canada. The latest modeling from Ottawa suggests that all of the largest provinces outside of Atlantic Canada will continue to see an increase in the rates of infection, with the possibility that Canada could reach 15,000 deaths from the virus by Christmas. The increase in cases comes from continuing community spread and the situation in long-term care homes, which is once again the most worrisome. The Prime Minister commented on the latest federal data. Again this week, far too many provinces reported record highs in cases and hospitalizations. These numbers must go down. Earlier today, Dr. Tam and Dr. New presented new models. The projections show that if we maintain the current number of people with whom each of us are in contact, the numbers will continue to surge and we could reach over 12,000 new cases a day in January. There is no other way. We must reduce our in-person contacts right now. A vaccine in a week or in a month won't help you if you get COVID-19 today. Joining me now is Dominique Leblanc. He's the Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs, and he's also the chair of the government's Special COVID Response Committee. First of all, Dominique Leblanc, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on the program, Martin. I mean, let's start with the, uh, the uh, press conference, which you presided over this morning, the modeling, the latest federal modeling that we saw. The figures say that we could reach 15,000 deaths by Christmas, that with the current measures in place, we'll still be seeing up to 12,000 new infections a day by January. I want to ask you, when you sat there with the premiers yesterday, when you and the prime minister met with them uh, virtually, uh, did you share with them where the trends are going? Are you tempted to say to them, look, you know, this is not the time to be relaxing re uh, restrictions? So, uh, of course, Dr. Tam, uh, Major General Fortin, uh, participated uh, in the update, in the briefing uh, that we had at the first part of the meeting with the premiers. And, of course, we talked uh, to them about uh, the concern that I think all Canadians share in terms of the increasing numbers of cases, the tragic outcomes in in many circumstances, uh, but that's obviously shared by the premiers. Uh, the discussion we had, I think, was sort of what more can we do collectively? What can we do together? What can the government of Canada do to support provinces? And most importantly, Canadians, Martin, if provinces want to make the difficult decision to lock down certain parts of, of their jurisdiction, of their provinces, or certain areas where uh, the transmission rates are, are worrisome to public health authorities, the government of Canada has to be there to support Canadians, as we have since the beginning of the pandemic, so that those measures uh, don't economically create uh, more uh, chaos and more concern that necessarily 
Uh, they already have. Okay, because uh, the reason I ask, though, is, I mean, the, several of those premiers, I think there's only two provinces which have decided definitively now to continue, well, two of the large provinces that are the most affected that have decided to continue on with their lockdown or their restriction measures. They, they're all approaching a date where they have to decide whether or not to, to lessen restrictions for Christmas. I mean, do you weigh in on that and say now is not the time to be lessening restrictions? So, uh, no, we don't think that uh, in those kind of decisions, it's constructive to have the government of Canada uh, sort of intervene on what necessarily is their responsibility, what is is their their jurisdiction. Um, but we certainly discuss, and Dr. Tam, for example, uh, the Chief Public Health Officer of Canada with her provincial and territorial counterparts, talk, I think, every day or, or multiple times during a week in terms of sharing data, sharing information, sharing best practices. So the conversations with the premiers was sort of along the lines of Canadians want our governments to work together, work constructively to protect them as best as we can. Uh, and premiers shared with each other uh, some of the decisions they're making. So uh, different premiers offered uh, sort of suggestions in terms of what they think might be best practices. A, a lot of the discussion, Martin, focused on long-term care homes, on, on protecting elderly, vulnerable populations, seniors, some of the most tragic outcomes have obviously been with respect to older Canadians and particularly those living in, in long-term care homes. So a good part of the discussion was how can the government of Canada do more, invest more money, uh, help share best practices from one jurisdiction to another and, and try and better protect uh, those that are most vulnerable. And, and we've seen, as I say, very very difficult outcomes in many, many jurisdictions right across the country. Well, that's where I was going next. I mean, the big story, and it's not a surprise to anyone, but the big story is that long-term care homes now are, once again, uh, suffering the lion's share of deaths already as the death rates go up. Um, in your economic statement, the federal government, your government, proposed a billion-dollar fund to help the provinces in long-term care homes. You said it would be especially for infection control. Uh, you discussed that with the premiers. Uh, where do things stand now? Uh, for example, are you going to go ahead with the idea that to qualify for that billion-dollar fund, the federal government might be asking for certain benchmarks or standards? So we've said, and you're absolutely right, there's a, a billion dollars that uh, my colleague Christia Freeland put in the economic update uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, that is available now for provinces and territories that want to work with us uh, in terms of common best practices. We, we don't see this in terms, Martin, of imposing standards uh, you know, many people see all kinds of conspiracies to impose standards on provincial jurisdictions. That certainly is not our intention or our approach. Our approach is to say, let's ask experts as health ministers and public health officers from every jurisdiction already have to try and develop guidelines, benchmarks, I think was the, was the good word you used. Um, and what can we do as a, as a national government to help provinces and territories raise the standard of care to try and meet a higher benchmark, a, a higher standard of infection control, of infection prevention. Uh, a lot of this has to do with some of the vulnerable women and men who also work looking after these people in the long-term care homes. So it's a, it's a complicated and long-standing challenge, but we've said to provinces and territories, the government of Canada wants to be part of a, of a solution that Canadians urgently are asking us to work on together. And we're prepared to invest, as you said, uh, We'll start with a billion dollars, uh, but if, if more can constructively be used to improve the care uh, of Canadians, of, of elder elders, uh, senior senior citizens in these kind of 
living circumstances, then we'd be happy to try and help. Okay, quick answer, because I have one last topic to deal with, but on that, that billion dollars, has any of that money flowed yet? How, lo how long before that money flows to the provinces? So I, I would hope that one premier actually texted me this morning and said, look, how can I sign up uh, uh, for the long-term care uh, uh, standards, uh, the long-term care guidelines? Like, what do we need to do uh, to uh, start working right away? So uh, I would think at the beginning of next week, uh, that particular premier and, and his health minister will be working with my colleagues uh, on what collectively we can do to raise in that jurisdiction uh, the standard of care offered to seniors living in these homes. And as I say, then the money's available now. Uh, we expect it to, uh, to start to reach provinces and territories in the coming weeks. And I think you'll see many premiers and many uh, territorial leaders, uh, Martin, say to us, look, we want to help. We want to, uh, we want to be part of this solution. Uh, and we want to collaborate. So I, I, I think it should be a very happy story on something that Canadians are very, very concerned about, and rightfully so. Okay, last question. One of the big things coming out of the meeting as well, from the Premier's point of view, they're interested in health transfers. The Prime Minister has said, he said point blank, that he is in favour of Ottawa, your government, increasing Ottawa's transfers under the Canada Health Transfer. Uh, he says they need to be increased. When can the provinces expect some sort of specific number? When can they expect an announcement on an increase? Would it be before a spring budget? Uh, what we've committed to doing, Martin, is to sitting down uh, with provincial and territorial financial or finance department officials. You know, the starting point to much of the discussion is based on numbers uh, and calculations that perhaps don't reflect the current reality. Um, the premiers, when they talk about percentages and amounts of money, conveniently forget out forget the uh, the tax points that the government of Canada transferred to provinces, we reduce, for example, by 13.5% the personal income tax, and immediately the provinces then took up that room right. uh, in taxation. But I guess, the, I guess the question is just a time frame. years ago. Right, but time but, frame, so, what, is, what is a time frame? Because we, we've gotten into all well, the, the minutiae of it, but is there a time frame? Uh, look, the time frame, first of all, we've already spent billions of dollars, Martin, supporting provinces in healthcare, and will continue to do so in expenses related to COVID-19. We, told, we started the conversation by telling the premiers that the over a billion dollars the government of Canada has already incurred to buy vaccines and distribute them to provinces and territories will, of course, uh, be uh, on the back of the, of the federal government and they'll be free for Canadians. Uh, what we've said to them is that the worst economic recession in 90 years and in the middle of a pandemic, it's sort of hard to look at the fiscal and economic circumstance six months from now, let alone 10 years from now. So that conversation will start, we hope, in the new year. And we're prepared to continue to transfer more money to provinces and territories for all of the costs related to COVID. And that's going to be our focus in the very short term. But of course, we're prepared to look with them at what are the longer term measures uh, necessary to support high quality public health care. Okay, Minister LeBlanc, thank you very much for taking the time. Well, thank you, Martin. I appreciate it. Have a great weekend. You too. The Trudeau government on Friday announced a new series of measures it says will allow Canada to reach its Paris greenhouse gas targets and its promise of net zero emissions by 2050. And those measures include a dramatic tripling of the federal carbon tax over 10 years, starting in two years' time. Here is the Prime Minister making that announcement in Ottawa. We know that Canadians understand that it can no longer be free to pollute anywhere in the country. 
That's why we move forward with putting a price on pollution right across the country. Unfortunately, as you point out, uh, there are some jurisdictions that still don't understand that the only way to build a strong economy for the future is to protect uh, the environment at the same time. There are some places in this country that still want to make pollution free again. Well, we're not going to do that. Well, joining me now to discuss the government's environmental announcement is Stephen Guilbeau. He is the Minister of Canadian Heritage and one of the Cabinet's most prominent environmentalists. First of all, Minister Guilbeau, thanks for joining us from the Arboretum in Ottawa. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, let's start with, I mean, the big headline in these measures is that you are saying that this package that you're announcing today will allow Canada to meet or exceed its Paris climate commitments by 2030. Now, as you know, all of the reports we've submitted to the United Nations so far say we are not going to make those targets by far. What in this package will make the difference? Well, the first thing I need to say is that I mean, we since we've been in power in 2015, we have started putting in place measures. But for 10 years, nothing was happening in Canada. So it's true that it takes a little while to start going. But we, we have started going. And what we're doing now is presenting a more measures. Uh, and, and it's a good balance, I feel, of, of, uh, of sticks and carrots. So in some cases, encouraging uh, Canadians, encouraging company, uh, and in other cases, putting in place regulations to ensure that, that our economy shifts more and more away from, from climate pollution. Okay, you're, one of the big measures, uh, I thought you were going to mention it, is hiking the carbon tax. It's now at $30 a ton. It's supposed to go up to $50 a ton in mm -hmm. two or three years. But you've now announced that it's going to go up to $170 yep. a ton by 2030 in the next 10 years' time. Um, for a long time, your predecessors said no decision had been made. But every economist, the parliamentary budget officer, environmental groups of which you were one, mm -hmm. were saying that if you're going to use a carbon tax, you need at least that level. Why did it take the federal government so long to announce this increase to $170 a ton in 10 years' time? Well, what we did in a previous mandate is put in place for the first time in Canada that price on pollution. And at the time, we said it would go until 2022. And we said we would wait until the, the, the next election, which was actually the last election, the 2019 election, to make a decision as to what would happen after 2022. That's exactly what we're doing today. As you pointed out, the I mean, environmental groups and experts and the budget parliamentary officer said that in order to have as much, as much efficiency as needed, that that pricing needed to be above 100 and even $120 will be at $170 by, by 2030. So it is going to be a pretty serious incentive for clean technologies, for renewable energy, for uh, energy efficiency and electric vehicles. And it's going to, it's one of the tools, it's not the only one, but it's one of the tools that's going to help Canada surpass our current Paris targets. Your figures suggest that that level of carbon tax in 10 years time will mean a liter of gas will cost 37 cents a liter more by 2030. Do you think there's public buy-in? Do you think the public's ready for the, the, those kind of cost increases? Well, on the one hand, it's not 30, 37 cents tomorrow morning. It's in 2030. On the other hand, there's two things we're doing. We will make it easier and easier for people to have access to electric vehicles, which means that regardless of the price of gasoline, you won't, you won't care about it. And on the second hand, for those people that still need to use gasoline engines, what we're doing is we, we're forcing car companies to make more and more efficient vehicles. So even as, if the price of gas goes up, your vehicle will consume less and less gasoline. 
as you know, you had major resistance from conservative and other premiers in the provinces and territories over the, the gas tax, the carbon tax in general. Is this increase to $170 a tonne by 2030, is this increase set in stone? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we will be having discussions and, and negotiations with, with, with provinces and territories in the coming weeks and months to see what we can do more together. So what we're presenting today is not the national plan, it's the federal plan, but we will be working with our counterparts to come up, because, I mean, we have provinces in, in Canada that have price on pollution, that are investing in, in, in different types of measures to, to, to reduce their carbon pollution, and we want to bring them to the table and bring everyone to the table and see together how far... How furthermore can, 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 can we go? But in terms of, uh, of that pricing, that's, that's a federal proposal and, and, and that's a federal commitment that this is what we will be doing. There is a wild card in all of this. The Supreme Court still has to rule on whether the existing carbon tax is constitutional. What happens if the court rules against the tax as it's not within federal powers, it's unconstitutional? Well, we feel very confident that, I mean, yes, we're talking about the carbon tax and it is a, an important element of the plan, but it's a very holistic plan because we have other regulatory measures that we are putting in place, a clean fuel standards. We've already introduced me measures to, to, to reduce the amount of methane pollution, a very powerful greenhouse gas. We are putting incentive measures in place. So it, it is a pretty big package and a, and a very holistic approach that we are taking to, to, to that. And by doing that, we're confident that we will, that Canada will not only reach its, its 2030 targets, but we will surpass them. Okay, last question about something that wasn't in this package, but a lot of people are watching for. U.S. President-elect Joe Biden is proposing what's called a border adjustment carbon tax. So that's a tax that will go on products coming from countries that have very, or that have more lax environmental standards. A lot of people are saying Canada will have no choice. Our hand will be forced. We'll have to bring in a border uh, carbon adjustment tax if the U.S. does. What's your, any thoughts on that? Um, I, I would have to, I mean, I'm pretty sure that I saw that we had something in the fall economic statement specifically about that, saying that Canada would start exploring uh, what we could do on, 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 for, on the front of border tax adjustment. Um, but I, I've, been, I've been really into this climate plan, so please don't quote me on this. Sure. Uh, I, we could double check. No, I think there was what, a what reference in there. We can definitely yeah. double check. There was a reference in there. It was yeah. just a question yeah, of whether was, that yes. becomes inevitable if the United States goes ahead with it. So let's let me start over, please. Um, in yeah. the fall economic statement, we did have uh, a passage on the fact that Canada would be working to, to, to implement such border tax adjustments. And, and the fact that now the new U.S. administration wants to do that um, is just a sign that we're going in the right direction. And in fact, we, we want to work with the new U.S. administration on things like like better vehicles, uh, on, on investment for, 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 for cleaner and, and greener planet, uh, on, on the fight against climate change. They've they, they, They've, they've nominated a new ambassador to climate change, John Kerry, who played a pivotal role in Paris five years ago, working with Minister Catherine McKenna and, and, and Prime Minister Trudeau. So I, I think that on the issue of climate change and clean technology, we now have uh, a new U.S. administration with whom we see eye to eye on this issue. Okay, Minister Guilbeault, thank you very much for taking the time and speaking with us. Thank you. Have a good day. Well, joining me now to look at the big events in federal politics are Marika Walsh. She's a national political reporter for the Globe and Mail. She joins us from Ottawa. And Negan Sinclair, who is a columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press, and he's joining us from Winnipeg. Both of you, thanks for joining us. 
Bonjour. Hello. Thanks for having us. Okay, let's. Um, I want to start with what an amazing week it has been, and I think most people would agree, both for the country and for the Trudeau government, because we've gone from last week where the opposition parties were hammering away at the Trudeau government, saying that Canada was going to be a little back of the pack, back of the lineup for vaccines, and today we see the first vaccinations that could be happening as early as Monday or Tuesday of next week. Uh, comments, reflections, uh, politically or otherwise, uh, start with you, Marika. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's been quite the turnaround from two weeks ago. I would say this really started where we really didn't have a lot of information from the government to having a full plan release this week with times for the first vaccines. I think, you know, for sure the Liberals have bought themselves some relief, some pressure relief from this, but there will be a lot of questions still in terms of how many we're getting down the road and how this will roll out for the general population. But certainly they have proven the Conservatives wrong in the rhetoric from the Conservatives. Okay, Nigan, reflections on, on vaccines and how the big turnaround and, and or the developments. Yeah, I mean, w most people who are aware and, and of the issue and how many doses had been pre-purchased by the federal government knew that it was going to roll out slowly early. And I think what the Conservatives did is pick up on some of the paranoia around that. But uh, as we can see, the vaccine travels quickly. It has to travel quickly because of the storage issues involving the Pfizer vaccine, which has to be given within days and hours of having been unpackaged. So we've got uh, uh, no surprise the vaccine began to be delivered out in the United Kingdom this week. Uh, it's starting in the United States uh, imminently and we'll be starting uh, vaccinations soon here in this country. However, the real challenge will be is the priority lists, which tend to be different depending on the jurisdiction. And that's been some of, the, some of the jurisdictional issues that's between the prime minister and the first ministers discussing who gets it first, how, what's the process for that. There's even discussed this discussion this week about the NHL buying vaccinations. So, I mean, there's a, there's a general concern. I think there's a general issue. There's going to be more conflicts coming in, in terms of who gets it. I have to ask you, Nigan, because you're in, in Winnipeg, but Brian Pallister, your, your premier, uh, has got himself in the thick of it by comments which people are still trying to understand about fears that because First Nations, uh, uh, Indigenous Canadians were going to be prioritized in isolated areas, he was wondering or worrying that that might take away from the overall number uh, in Winnipeg and Manitoba and other parts of Manitoba. And But then other things have come. I, I don't quite understand. Can you clarify anything? Yeah, so... Premier Brian Pallister said two things this past week. First is that he said that he was concerned that if the vaccinations were delivered to First Nations, people would rush to First Nations and then therefore bring COVID, which is absolutely inane. And then the second thing that he said was that he was he, fe he feared that First Nations getting vaccinated first would be unfair to other Manitobans. And both things, of course, are patently false, patently small thinking, and really evident of a real problematic relationship this Premier has with First Nations here in Manitoba. Of course, First Nations making, making up proportionally the largest communities in the country here in Manitoba. So it's become very contentious. Now the Grand Chief of Manitoba is not meeting with the Premier. Uh, there's, they're holding competing news conferences. There's a real, real sort of rancorous uh, environment that's been created amongst First Nations and the Premier. But 
the fact is that the federal government has denoted that that vaccines are to go to First Nations first. They have to go there first because they are proportionally worse hit than anywhere else. Test positivity rates 30, 40 percent on First Nations. And the military is coming into First Nations here in Manitoba and has to deal with the issue of the spreading epidemic in those communities, which inevitably will come back to all Manitobans because the issue really here is colonialism, chronic underfunding, moldy houses, uh, you know, tainted water. All of those issues have led to the pandemic spreading quickly on First Nations and really is coming home to roost now for Canadians. And Canadians are facing 150 years of mistreatment unless we deal with the vaccination issue on First Nations first and immediately, regardless of what the Premier okay. says. Marika, you have followed the, the, the vaccine issue quite a lot. And I was wondering if you had reflected on this. But one of the things that we all came, it all came as a surprise that we were getting these doses of vaccines, the Pfizer vaccines, so quickly and so soon. But then some people have suggested that this is actually mutually beneficial, both to the pharmaceutical company, to public health authorities, and of course, to the government, because it looks better, because it, it, they're small amounts and they allow everyone to do a sort of a dry test of mm-hmm. a very, a very labor-intensive delivery process. Yeah, and for sure, and that's something that we saw provincial leaders and officials talking about as something that they wanted to see or hoped for, that they could kind of test this out with smaller quantities first. I think it's important to note that this is not extra vaccines. This is still part of the total yeah. 6 million, right? And so it's just being stretched out over a bit of a longer time span. And that's why I said that April time when the general population is really supposed to be getting this will be the critical next step, I think, and explaining how that will happen. I do think that in some ways this vaccine controversy was um, an issue of the Liberals' own making when the Prime Minister said that Canada would get it after other countries that are manufacturing it. That's what really raised the eyebrows and raised the questions. And the Liberals have been trying to undo that or or explain that away ever since. So certainly it's something that the opposition jumped on and certainly their rhetoric does not match what has happened now. But the nut of that was this comment from from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And really now the question is on, I think, more on the provinces to explain very clearly and show very clearly how they will roll this out. It's not going to be an easy task for them either. Exactly. Okay, I want to get to a last uh, second subject, and we don't have a lot of time, but everyone, uh, there was a lot of foreshadowing of what was going to happen at the first minister's meeting on Thursday. Uh, The suggestion was very strongly telegraphed from the federal government that there wasn't going to be any agreement on increased health care transfer payments from Ottawa, but the Prime Minister did go and say, he went as far as saying, no, he thinks there should be an increase in the proportion that that Ottawa is assuming. Uh, What do you make of it? Where does this leave the provinces? Marika. I mean, it's going to, it's really a question of timing. So in 2016 and 2017, the federal government signed 10-year deals with the provinces and territories on federal funding for health care. So is the Prime Minister talking about updating it for 2027? Or is he talking about earlier? That's what's really going to matter. That's that's where the rubber hits the road for the federal government. The prime minister has made the point that given the pandemic, we don't know the status of the economy in three months, let alone in three years. But we know have we've known for a long time that this is a problem for the provinces. So I think, you know, the pressure is going to ramp up in the spring when the budget comes. What's different this time than with 2016 is that the premiers are much more united. Yeah. In 2016, there were still several liberal premiers on the East Coast. They folded, so there was no unified front from the premiers to push for more money at that time. 
And I don't think that the Liberals will have that this time around. Okay, Nigan, your uh, your thoughts on it? Uh, I know uh, Premier Legault, for example, said he pointed out in, in the sort of the statement he made for all of the premiers, and that is the level of indebtedness that the provinces are getting in is sort of exacerbated this uh, what they've said has been a pre-existing condition that they're not getting enough from Ottawa. And Premier Legault also points out that the Liberals potentially are using this as an election issue uh, to going into the springtime with a potential federal election saying, well, we'll give millions of dollars if we get voted back in. And, and, and I mean, that's a potentially true uh, scenario. Uh, the real issue here that perhaps is not as reported upon or not talked about as much which is that the premiers are united, but they're also united in political stripe, as uh, uh, Marika pointed out. And, and the, the real issue here is that the, the premiers have uh, withheld funding that they have been given by the federal government in order to use uh, for their own provincial budgets and their own provincial purposes and haven't denoted as much, particularly here on the prairies, to dealing with the pandemic, even though the money has been earmarked for that. And of course, it's wrapped up in jurisdictional uh, squabbles and so on. So that's the real challenge here is that, you know, $14 billion in Ontario uh, is being held by Doug Ford, which has been given by the federal government to deal with the pandemic and, and hasn't been used. And so yeah. uh, the federal government has a lot of things also to say to the premiers. Okay, well, on that note, I want to thank both of you. Thanks for weighing in and uh, thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics from all of us here at CPAC. Thanks for watching and have a great weekend.